Welcome to this week's special episode of Business Wise. Now, this is a special one because when you take away the bonus and review episodes we have dropped over the past three and a half years, this is actually our 200th original episode, which frankly blows our minds over here. We never dreamed when we started recording this podcast to help out our members during the pandemic that we would still be going strong after 200 episodes. But anyway, we aren't running out of material thanks to the extremely prolific work and wisdom of Mr. L. Ron Hubbard. And you guys don't seem to be sick of listening to us, judging from the steady increase in listeners. So we figured we'll just keep going. So here we go. This is a podcast series for entrepreneurs interested in expanding through learning and applying the management system discovered and developed by humanitarian philosopher and administrator, Mr. L. Ron Hubbard. And we are interrupting our continuing series on the conditions, Mr. Hubbard's discovery of the scale of the operating states all living things pass through as they either expand and increase in survival or in reverse as they contract. We've been covering those with a series of episodes. I think we got up to series number 10. And we will get back to those next week. But hey, this is our 200th episode. So let's see if we can't do something a little special. In our 100th episode, we did a 40-minute discussion of the 30-plus, something on the order of 30-something, most common words of advice we've ever given our members uh, based on the Harvard Management System. And we put this in some kind of order, and we called it the Checklist for Success. And then we later issued this as a document. Hundreds of listeners have requested this checklist, and it would seem that it's quite popular. So. For this 200th episode, we thought we would discuss what we consider humbly to be the elements of success. In other words, in reviewing the progress of thousands of wise members, what are the common denominators of the most successful amongst them? So we wrote down a list of these elements, and you know, we just, you know, just basically just looking at it no particular research beyond the fact that we've been doing this for a long time. So uh, I want to first of all give myself the following escape clause. Uh, While all these elements feature stable data from Mr. Hubbard, this is our list, not his. So you may think of a few other elements we have missed that could easily be considered elements of success. And you're certainly welcome to create your own list. But sitting down to just dot down 10 things that we would say combined, it made for extreme success with our members and uh, all the badasses we've connected with over the past two or three decades, they've all had these elements in common. And so you can hardly go wrong with them. So with that proviso, let's just get into it. So here's the first one. Number one, motivation. I would have to say that all of our members who achieved extreme success have been highly motivated. Now, to motivate means, per Mr. Oxford, provide someone with a motive for doing something. So all of our most successful members have strong motives. What's a motive? Actually, a very interesting word. Motive is a reason for doing something. Again, from Mr. Oxford. And look at the derivation. It comes from late Latin, movere, to move. So a motive is something that gets you to move. And if you want to get something done, you got to be willing to get moving. 
So I would say the first common denominator that comes to mind of all my most successful members is that they are motivated. And let's take a look at what motivates them, because that's a part of this as well, what actually motivates them. So I probably have covered this before, but Article 11 November 1969 from Mr. Hubbard, it's called Promotion and Motivation. He says here, quote, the weakest motivation is money. People and businesses that are motivated only by money are wobbly people. A primary cause of failure is money motivation. The scale of motivation from the highest to the lowest is duty, highest, personal conviction, personal gain, money, lowest. Isn't this interesting? So Mr. Hubbard is making the point that if you're purely money motivated and you look to your own experience, Look how truly successful people that are entirely motivated by money are. Now, we're not talking about success. By the way, how are you going to measure success? Do you measure it only by how much money you have in a bank account? That would be probably, I think any one of you can realize that that would not be an adequate measure of somebody's success. There's plenty of people that off themselves that have plenty of money and they either off themselves brutally in a suicide or they're destroying themselves through drugs or some sort of decadent lifestyle and so forth. How could you call them successful at that point? So he says, again, the scale of motivation from the highest to the lowest is duty, highest, personal conviction, personal gain, money, lowest. Then he goes on to say, money is important in the world, but it is a grease on the machinery, not the motors. In a society which has lost its patriotism and pride, money will be found as a primary motivation. True, one is in trouble without money. And it is a crime in the eyes of the society to be without money. But one also needs dirt to stand on, and yet dirt cannot be said to be the primary motivation for living. So money is a tool, a gas tank. It is a means of getting something done. It is no valid end in itself. So here you have uh, Mr. Hubbard spelling it out, that uh, the person who is only motivated by money ends up being a rather wobbly person. There's nothing wrong with having an interest in making sure that you're making money or that you have money and so on. It is a crime in society. But look at what is motivating businesses today in many, many cases. So we're talking about very significant, huge industries like the pharmaceutical industry, for instance. You might ask yourself, like, why would anyone put out medications that are known to be destructive? It's known to be destructive. Just look at the side effects are published on the labels. How about some of these businesses in the food industry that are producing food that doesn't have actual nutritional value and can even be harmful to individuals? Like, I'm not going to do a whole dissertation on this. It's not an area I've studied carefully, but any fool can see that many of the health problems we have in our modern society, the increase in cancer and so forth, has to be attributable to what people are putting inside their bodies. Well, do you think it's unknown to the individuals that are putting that out? These foods that are not actually healthy for us? Again, I don't want to get on a soapbox. I'm only making a point. If one is motivated only by money, then how could one call oneself successful if the world you are creating around you is not a winning environment? So duty and personal conviction far, far higher, particularly duty. But I will say this. That our most successful members, I would have to say, are duty motivated. 
What, what does that mean? They're duty motivated. Well, let's take a look at the definition of the word duty. Dictionary.com gives us the following definition. Something that one is expected or required to do by moral or legal obligation. The binding or obligatory force of something that is morally or legally right. What's duty? It's doing the right thing. What's right? Mr. Hubbard has a definition of right, doesn't he? We've covered it many times. 19 August 1967. Quote, This would be forwarding a purpose not destructive to the majority of the dynamics. Now, we've been covering the dynamics a lot recently, but the dynamics are the motivations for survival. They're the urge to survive, and they span across eight subdivisions, starting with the dynamic of self, so you can be motivated by a desire to survive for oneself. Second dynamic would be, of course, a family dynamic, survival of the family, sexual act itself. Second dynamic, third dynamic, dynamic of groups, fourth dynamic, mankind dynamic, and so on. So dynamic, what does dynamic mean? You say he's a dynamic person. That means he's highly motivated. That means he's in motion. That means that things are happening around them because they have a high dynamic. So let's just chop off seven dynamics and only operate on the first dynamic. How much dynamic is there? How strong a motivation is there? No, motivation has to span across the dynamics. One has to be doing the right thing. One has to be motivated by duty. What is my duty? Here I am. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a wise member. I'm here on this planet. I'm in this community. I'm producing whatever I'm producing or whatever service I'm providing. What is my duty with regards to what I'm providing the community? Is it only, you know, if I provide shoes, is it only about shoes? Or is it also about raising the general survival of that community in many, many different ways? By achieving great prosperity, by making oneself a model of admin know-how, by making oneself an example, an island of sanity, if you will, and, and, and emanating that to your customers, to your neighbors, to other business owners around you, and taking responsibility for those things, and tying one's motivation, tying one's work into bringing about a healthier, more survival situation across the dynamics. Uh, being as that involves now more dynamics, would that not be a stronger motivation? Is that now not a duty motivation? It is my duty to be successful. I tell the members, like, look it, if you don't want to be successful for yourself, do it for the good of mankind. If you are happy driving some beat up, dilapidated, derelict automobile, do that at night. In the daytime, I need you driving your Cadillac, brother. Like, we, we need to set an example and not, not to be ostentatious or show off, but just to demonstrate the effectiveness of living right, doing the right things, applying oneself and one's knowledge to being professional and so on. Anyway, I think I made my point. Motivation. Review your motivation. Why am I doing this? Is it because of money? Is it because of personal gain? Is it because of personal conviction? Or am I addressing this as my duty? And I think if you look at that higher level of motivation, you will have a much stronger dynamic, much stronger motivation, and you will get a lot more done and you'll achieve a lot more success. So that's number one, would be motivation. Now, element number two, let's call it study. Let's call it professionalism, okay? Because 
the great wise members I know and the great people I know in any area of profession, well, they, they are professional. They do things to professional standards and they study. They study a lot and they don't ever think that they know everything. They're always studying. They're always learning. They're absorbing information from many, many different sources, particularly when it comes to management or life. They study Mr. Hubbard's works. They are trained in Mr. Hubbard's works. They've done actual courses. If you're not on course and studying Mr. Hubbard's works and you are attempting to implement this in your life or in your business, what do you think you're doing? I mean, it's great that you're listening to the podcast, and I hope I don't lose a bunch of listeners here, but please, the podcast is not a substitute for actual study and going on to courses and doing the courses and learning the stuff the way all of us did to be able to help so many other people and to achieve success in our own lives. Uh, the definitive article on this, by the way, by Mr. Hubbard, is entitled Professionalism. Many of you have probably seen this published on a plaque and so forth. It's not uncommon find this quote from Mr. Hubbard. I'll give it to you now. Quote, don't ever do anything as though you were an amateur. Anything you do, do it as a professional to professional standards. If you have the idea about anything you do that you just dabble in it, you will wind up with a dabble life. Now, this is a good point because I have seen many members dabble with Hubbard management, but not really study it to a professional level, and yet they're entrepreneurs, yet they're managers, yet they're executives, business owners. And in many cases, by the way, they're very professional in their trade, in, what the, in the service that they're providing the public as a, as a construction manager, as a dentist, as a healthcare professional, very professional indeed, lots and lots of hours of study and application. But when it comes to management, dabble. Let's dabble in this, right? And so as a consequence, they're not fulfilling their duty. They're not making as big an impingement and change in the environment as they probably could. So their success, obviously, is sacrificed to that degree. So I'll just repeat that. If you have the idea about anything you do, that you just dabble in it, you will wind up with a dabble life. There'll be no satisfaction in it because there'll be no real production you can be proud of. Develop the frame of mind that whatever you do, you are doing it as a professional and move up to professional standards in it. Never let it be said of you that you lived an amateur life. Professionals see situations and they handle what they see. They are not amateur dabblers. So learn this as a first lesson about life. The only successful beings in any field, including living itself, are those who have a professional viewpoint and make themselves, and are professionals. L. Ron Hubbard. So that would be, I would say, element number two. Doing things to a professional level. Study, 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 study. Learn and continue to get better and more professional at whatever it is that you're doing. Whether it's music, whether it's acting. Think of the example of Mr. Tom Cruise and incredible professionalism and uh, it's legendary the way he dedicates himself to learning everything he does when he performs these spectacular stunts. Anyway, I don't really need to go over what's becoming so well known. Let that be how you are thought of, that you approach things to that level of professionalism, right? Okay, let's move on to what we might consider the third element of success. 
Now, these next two elements, number three and number four, I'm going to combine because they're very closely related. Okay. And that is, if you're going to be successful, you need to be tough. Tough guy. (laughs) You need to be able to take all the knocks and you have to be willing to front up to things and confront things that may be uncomfortable. You've got to be tough. It doesn't mean you need to be a jerk. The toughest people I've ever met have tremendous passion for others, but they are tough, man. You do not mess with those people. Okay. They have a love for others. They have a care for others, but they are tough and you don't want to mess with them. Okay. And the other element is that they are dedicated, tough and dedicated. These are two very, very important elements. I mean, I think you can see that you're not going to achieve a level, a high level of professionalism and competence without dedication. And you're not going to achieve whatever your motivations are and whatever your purposes are. You're not going to get there without an extreme amount of dedication. So toughness and dedication. Ask yourself, do I actually have these qualities or not in what I am pursuing, in the life that I am pursuing, the, the goals that I am pursuing? Could I say that about myself? And if you can't, work on those points. Mr. Hubbard, in a very famous article, many of the listeners will recognize this, dated on the 7th of February, 1965. Mr. Hubbard says this, the finest organizations in history have been tough, dedicated organizations. Not one namby-pamby bunch of panty-waist dilettantes have ever made anything. It's a tough universe. The social veneer makes it seem mild, but only the tigers survive, and even they have a hard time. We'll survive because we are tough and are dedicated. So there you have it. These two essential qualities to really making it with any of this knowledge. Are you tough enough to implement it? I have members tell me, well, I'm afraid if I implement you know, statistical management and conditions that you know, my receptionist might get upset. All right. Is your receptionist bigger physically than you are? Are you somehow intimidated? Is that, is that what's happening? You know, it's like, how tough is the guy? How tough is the girl? Like, you got to be tough if you want to try and make a difference in this world. If you want to try and make a success for yourself and really, truly survive across the dynamics, you better be tough and you better be dedicated. You better not be able to be knocked off course by a stern look from a parent. I'm not trying to throw parents under the bus, but you say you have a dream, you say you have a goal, and somebody gives you a funny look and you go, oh, I don't know. You know, does a group agree with me? Does society agree with me? If you're going to move forward with the idea that everything you do is going to get agreement from the culture or the society around you, then that means you're going to have to live the kinds of uh, lifestyles that your your community or your society is dictating to you, not the one that you're dictating for yourself. You're going to have to survive, quote unquote, along the terms that are being set for you by others, by societal agreement, what Mr. Hubbard calls group or bank agreement. 
You want to live like that? Go ahead, worship the group agreement. You'll be sorry. And that looks like, okay, this is the route to survival. No, it's not the route to survival. The route to survival is by being tough and dedicated. Then you'll really survive and you'll make, I, I hate to say make a name for yourself. It's not like we, you know, that shouldn't be your motivation either. But let's just say you will make a difference, okay? But if you want to make a difference and that's important to you and you feel it's your duty, better be prepared to be tough and dedicated. All right, enough said about three and four. Let's move on to number five. I would say that number five would be willingness to communicate. You know, sometimes get a new member of WISE and so on, and notice how difficult it is to get them to return a phone call, answer a text message, answer an email. And very often I say to these members, if I ever do get a hold of them, I say, look at, you know, I'm going to give you your first lesson in achieving prosperity and success. Handle your communications better. Be more willing to communicate. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I, I hear guys tell me, one point of the code of honor everybody seems to remember is, you know, only give or receive communication when you're willing, you know, if you yourself desire it. I, this isn't a talk on the code of honor. I did do a, an earlier talk on that. But it seems to be the one point people remember about the code of honor. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, you, you should apply that. But look, there's too much of that going on. There's too many upsets between individuals. I'm not talking to that person again, or I won't deal with that person again, or I'm not answering calls from that entity or, you know, responding to this or that. Look, if you are perpetrating that on others, are you really surprised when that's perpetrated on you? The, the most successful people I know have a high willingness and tolerance of communication. They're disciplined in their communication. But you'd be surprised if you actually answer people how they stop, quote-unquote, harassing you. Say, well, I get all these calls from Joe Schmo. Do you return any of them? No. Well, why do you think you get so many calls from Joe Schmo then? You, you don't answer him. Like, use what, you know, study the communication formula that Mr. Hubbard we're not going over that right now, you know, but you should study the formula. You should practice it and you should get very, very, very good at it because the better you are at communication, the more willing you are to communicate, the more success you're going to have. I'm just going to read this is from an article. 26 March 1953, Mr. Hubbard says, and I quote, money flows toward points which attract pro-survival attention. All you've got to do is stand up there and keep on being pro-survival and be pro-survival in a widening communication sphere. And you will just have to start throwing this stuff away. What's this stuff? He's talking about money. He goes on to say, you just turn your back on it. It gets a little bit tough after a while. You have to turn your back on it because money gets you in trouble faster than anything I know. More people start jumping you the second that you, they think you've got a few bucks. It's wonderful. I mean, insurance brokers, all your time's taken up with trying to fight off security salesmen. If you've got money, these are Mr. Hubbard's words, not mine. Goes on to say this, but this is something you kind of ought to put down. You make money as much as you get attention and you get as much attention in a society as you put your communication lines out. And if you don't put your communication points out in a society, there isn't any flow in, in terms of money. That answers the buck. 
but it answers something else at the same time. It tells you to put out those communication lines, put them way out. L. Ron Hubbard. Get out there and communicate. Start communicating. Get involved. Like, you know, say, hey, you know, I want to get you involved with our local group. Oh, I have no time. I'm so busy with my job and I'm so busy with my work. And yeah, but you'll make a whole bunch of new friends and we can create a network and so on. And, you know, we can all support each other. And uh, yeah, no, I don't have time for that. It's like people cutting their communication lines on a regular basis. May as well just cut your own throat, you know, cut open a vein or something. It's like, that's basically what you're doing when you start cutting communication lines. Again, I'm not saying don't be disciplined on those calm lines. I'm just saying being willing to communicate is the answer and communicating correctly is the answer, not cutting communication. If you communicate effectively, if you give people proper acknowledgements and so forth, they won't go on and on and waste all your time with a bunch of blah, blah, what Mr. Hubbard might call circuitry. You know, it's you actually, if you know how to communicate well and you've studied communication, you've taken courses on the subject and you really do it well. You get to the being. You start communicating with the person, not with his mechanisms, shall we just call it that. But the answer is more communication, not less, if you want to be successful. All right. Now, this next point, this next element of success actually closely relates to the earlier one, number five, willingness to communicate. And that is number six, I would say, is strength in unity and coming together in finding your group, your team, okay? You would be a rare individual who would be able to achieve supreme success all alone. Everybody needs another, what we call a terminal, someone to communicate with, a peer, many peers, sound advice. I have the honor and privilege of being someone that my members feel they can communicate with as a terminal, as someone that they can go over a problem with. A lot of times you'll find, uh, as I do, I need terminals too. I need my peers. I need uh, people that I can talk to. Sometimes I'll just go in and plop myself in a chair and talk to somebody. And by the time I'm done telling them what's getting my goat at the moment, I've already pretty much solved it by the time I'm done. But Having a group around one, having a unity, particularly when you're dealing with a world as insane as it's becoming, you need your fellows, you need your teammates. Do everything you can to forge a tight group or team around you. And I'm not just talking about the team in your company. I'm not talking about just the employees that work for you. That's important. I'm talking about a peer group. I'm talking about people around you, above you, below you. Form a, to use a a word advisedly, I would say, form your conspiracy. I know it's a a conspiracy can have a bad connotation, but can also have a positive connotation. I want to read you something from Mr. Hubbard. What I consider to be one of the most important articles he ever wrote is called Responsibilities of Leaders. It's an article, uses the example of what Mr. Hubbard considered one of the greatest generals of all time on planet Earth. And by the name of Simon Bolivar, or Bolivar, Simon Bolivar, I guess would be the English pronunciation, and Manuela Sayens, who was his consort and his uh, his power, I guess you could say his right arm. And uh, he describes their successes and the reasons for their failures. He completes the article. It's not quite the last section of it, but 
he puts in here seven points of power. In fact, we've talked about this in an earlier episode. So this isn't the last paragraph, but it's the last step of what he calls the seven points of power. And listen to what he says here. Point number seven. And lastly, and most important, for we all aren't on the stage with our names in lights, always push power in the direction of anyone on whose power you depend. It may be more money for the power, or more ease, or a snarling defense of the power to a critic, or even the dull thud of one of his enemies in the dark, or the glorious blaze of the whole enemy camp as a birthday surprise. Remember, he's talking about Simon Bolivar here. So he's got, he's using a military analogy. You don't have to burn anybody's house down to, to flow power to somebody. But think about the people on whom you count on. These are the ones you derive power from and make sure you're pushing power there back and forth. You know, so who, who, do, who does your power depend upon? Make sure you're pushing power in that direction, whether they're senior to you, whether they're junior to you. He goes on to say this, if you work like that, And the power you are near or depend upon is a power that has at least some inkling about how to be one. And if you make others work like that, then the power factor expands and expands and expands. And you too acquire a sphere of power bigger than you would have if you worked alone. Real powers are developed by tight conspiracies of this kind, pushing someone up in whose leadership they have faith. And if they're right, and also manage their man, and keep him from collapsing through overwork, bad temper, or bad data, a kind of juggernaut builds up. Isn't that what we need in society today? A juggernaut? Look at all the insanity around us. Look at the it doesn't matter where you look. Look at the, uh, we were talking about food early. We were talking about the drugging of our children. We're talking about medications that are harmful. We're looking at societal policies, economic policies that are thwarting initiative and individual productivity and so on. How do you combat that? By yourself? Heck no. By forming a juggernaut, by forming tight conspiracies, by finding others around you that are like-minded and locking arms with them. And getting past, use what we went over earlier about communication. Lock arms, settle any upsets or disputes, and make sure that you are in a coalition. And that is probably the senior most objective we have in WISE, by the way. I just want to add that, is that we find each other, the entrepreneurs that are using the Hubbard Management System, and all have agreement on duty and doing the right thing and being ethical. We'll get more into that in a minute. And push forward and make change. And uh, Lord knows, the world needs us. They're counting on us. They're counting on you. So we better find each other and lock arms. He goes on to say this, don't ever feel weaker because you work for somebody stronger. The only failure lies in taxing or pulling down the strength on which you depend. All failures to remain a power's power are failures to contribute to the strength and longevity of the work, health, and power of that power. Devotion requires active contribution outwards from the power as well as in. So you find leaders in your community, push power to them, that, that, that are pushing survival goals and sane, you know, duty-motivated type change, push power to them. And if they're smart, they're going to push power back to you too because it, devotion requires active contribution outwards from the power as well as in. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. 
or pushing power back and forth to each other, to the people we depend upon above us, below us, to our right and to our left. And we can form these conspiracies and juggernauts and make effective change and achieve real success across life, across the dynamics. Okay, let's get on with element number seven, which is a high sense of ethics and justice. Now, let's distinguish the two. Ethics, from Mr. Hubbard's works, this is the definition, the actions an individual takes on himself in order to accomplish optimum survival for himself and others on all dynamics. Ethics are reason, consisting of rationality toward the highest level of survival for the individual, the future race, the group, and mankind, and the other dynamics taken collectively. It is a personal thing. When one is ethical or, quote, has his ethics in, it is by his own determinism, and it is done by himself. The word comes from the Greek word ethos, which means character. So, the great and most successful amongst us are ethical. They have a high sense of ethics. They operate according to the greatest good of all dynamics. Do not think that the route to survival and success exists by ignoring any dynamic, even temporarily. You know, I've, I've had people tell me, look, um, I know uh, you need my help, but I'm really, really busy right now. I'm just focusing on myself for the moment. And then uh, when I'm done with uh, XYZ, you can count on me. Uh, would you do that with your kids? Okay, I'm going to just work on my business for the next three years, and then I'll start working on my second dynamic in my family. By the time you get around to your family, it's going to be completely out of control. What do you think is happening with our fourth dynamic? Our fourth dynamic, mankind dynamic, would be the concatenation of all the irresponsibilities of those who are too darn busy to do anything about it. Wouldn't that be true? I mean, all of our survival is involved. You know, mankind goes, we go. We're part of mankind, last time I checked. So taking responsibility for mankind should be something one is addressing continuously right now. Not something that one gets to later. Like, I'll get to the other dynamics later. That is not ethics. Ethics is operating on the greatest good for the greatest number. And correcting oneself when one isn't. And we're doing a whole series of... Uh, Episodes on the conditions, which are basically ethics. Ethics conditions are called. So you can get back to that when we're done with this episode. But for now, I will just say this, that the most successful amongst the membership and of the individuals that I've had the pleasure of working with uh, over these many years, they have as a common denominator a high sense of ethics and justice as well. So let's just take a look at justice. Don't ignore that. In an article dated 15 November 1972, Mr. Hubbard defines justice, the action of the group against the individual when he has failed to get his own ethics in. Hey, look at you better be willing to act. If you've got an individual who is chronically and constantly or even just acutely, momentarily doing things that are destructive to the other dynamics and you take no action, you have no sense of justice. You better, because sooner or later, that failure to put in the ethics of the individual or apply justice to him is a more correct expression of it, okay, uh, you will 
sooner or later, get the repercussion of that. You know, the, the neighbor who, uh, who won't take care of his uh, house or his home and his own level of ethics is not quite up to it. It's, uh, it's getting run down and uh, decayed and you do nothing about it. And the next thing you know, he's got a fire and it burns down your home right next to it. Why? Because you didn't apply justice. You didn't even take the simple justice action of going over and saying, hey, buddy, this isn't going to cut it. You can't do this in our neighborhood. And maybe getting others involved too. To Why? Because their ethics is out. They're not operating to their greatest good. And so now it's impinging on the other dynamics. So you better take a justice stance. And the great and most successful people that I have, again, that I've had the pleasure of dealing with, they have a high sense of justice and they're willing to use it. Uh, Again, we refer to the code of honor, never fear to hurt another in a just cause. Yeah, it's a just cause. Go ahead, take action. And uh, it might be a black eye, might be uh, writing up a report to the correct authority. Just don't let it slide because if you let it slide, you will sooner or later be the effect of that. So high sense of justice is important. Obviously, if you're running an organization and you are the entrepreneur and you're the owner, ignoring justice in your group is going to give you a very weak disaster of a group and you won't achieve success that way. But I'm also talking about using justice in life and uh, on the other dynamics as well. You don't have to be uh, the marshal in town. But sometimes it helps to take on that beingness as needed. All right. Point number eight, element number eight, caring what goes on. Very, very essential to being truly successful. Mr. Robert says in article 10 November 1966, it's called Good Versus Bad Management. He says the essence of good management is caring what goes on. And he goes on to explain this. He says the worker-oriented fellow cares for the worker, but not for the organization. So we have a final extinction of the worker by the organization vanishing and no longer able to employ. The consequence is a widespread depression just beginning. Real help for the worker is also making sure there will be work for him to do. Okay, so the great entrepreneurs, great wise members, great people care. They care what's going on. Now, care is a very, very interesting word. It's worth clearing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you Mr. Hubbard's definition of the term care for it. He says, care for it is a broader concept than, but similar to, start, change, or stop it. It includes guard it, help it, like it, be interested in it, etc., this is from an article, 17 January, 1962. So caring for something, let's be precise. If you care for your car, you don't let it get dirty. You don't let it go unmaintained. You control it. You start change and stop it. You don't drive it into a, a lamppost. You know, you control it. If you care for your children, you control them too. Within, obviously, you want to encourage their self-determinism. You're not going to run every, you know, second of their lives. But you better guard them, help them, like them, be interested in them. That's caring. 
And if you care for things, if you care for your business, you're going to be more successful. If you care for your family, you're going to be more successful. You're going to care for your community, you're going to be more successful. You're going to care for the customer that's sitting in front of you being sold something. You're selling them something. If you care for them, just try it. Try it. When you're you're talking and the next time we did a whole episode on this way back in the beginning on sales and what's called hard sell. You hard sell is talking about caring about the person. That's what it's about. That's what hard sell truly is. So next time you're selling somebody something, just try it as a, as a little experiment. Try having the attitude that you're guarding them, you're helping them, you like them, and you're interested in them. And you tell me if that doesn't make a difference. Do the same thing with your employees when you're sorting them out. Even when you're applying justice. Like sometimes you got to kick a guy out. He's not going to get his ethics and he's out of the group. But even that doesn't have to be done without care. Actually, this is per Mr. Hubbard. When you dismiss someone, they're supposed to get a program from you of how they can make themselves qualified to reapply. I'm not advocating this necessarily. I haven't really done a whole lot of research on it. I haven't insisted on it with the members, but that is how it is done in the organizations that Mr. Hubbard administers. That's how much care should go in, and it should be sincere care. Don't try phony care. Phony care is phony, it's not going to work. But if you genuinely care for things, you will see a much greater level of success by being willing to start change and stop it, by being willing to guard, help, like, and certainly to be interested in it. All right, well, the ninth element, and of course, it's hard to say that any of these are more important than the other, but it certainly is an important one, and that is, of course, to be responsible. Now, responsibility from Mr. Hubbard, has very specific definitions. You're going to see an interesting tie-in here. He defines responsibility, the state quality or fact of being responsible, and responsible means legally or ethically accountable for the care or welfare of another, involving personal accountability or ability to act without guidance or superior authority, being the source or cause of something. Very important. Take a look at anything you feel you're not the source or cause of, and you'll find you're being irresponsible in that area. And if you're being irresponsible in that area, that automatically puts you at effect, doesn't it? You are either cause or you're the effect. And by being responsible, one is putting oneself in the position of cause. Yeah, I got fired. Boy, am I ever the effect of that. But how did I cause that? You see, if you say I'm the victim and I got fired because my boss is a so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, That is not putting you in the position of cause. That's putting you in the position of victim, and that is not being responsible. That is an irresponsible perspective, putting you out of effect. And the more one takes an irresponsible viewpoint with regards to the circumstances around one, the more of a victim one becomes till one is total effect. That's not a road to success. It apparently appears to be inviting as a road to success since as one tends to run into individuals who assume an effect viewpoint that somehow makes them feel better. I don't get it. But, you know, like, no, it wasn't me. It was them. Okay. And how does that make you feel? Great. Does it make you feel more cause? No. Does it make you feel like a victim? I guess so. But you feel great. Yeah, yeah, I feel great. No, you don't. You don't. You feel great when you know you aced it. You did it. You caused it. Even getting your butt canned in an organization, you'll feel better 
when you can find your cause for what happened versus just being the victim of it and being irresponsible. When one can find one's own responsibility, try it sometime. Take some element of your life where you have been a victim, where your life has been ruined by this woman or this guy or this boss or this group or this whatever it is, and just try it for yourself. Look at the circumstances. And this will lead to the final point we're talking about here, point number 10, which we'll come to. But just take a look at what actually occurred and see if you can find your own cause. And you tell me if you don't feel stronger, better, or more able as a result. I I can pretty much guarantee you will if you do that properly. So just to go on and finish this definition, this is Mr. Hubbard's words, being the source or cause of something capable of making moral or rational decisions on one's own and therefore answerable for one's behavior, able to be trusted or dependent upon, reliable, based upon or characterized by good judgment or sound thinking. This from an article, 29 October 1971, very comprehensive definition of responsibility. And doesn't that sound awesome? Would would you like to hire a guy like that? Yeah, you sure you would. How'd you like to be a guy like that or a girl like that? Right? That's what one should be striving for is an increase in responsibility. We pull this gag, you know, people want to be more cause. Who wants to be more cause? Oh yeah, I want to be more cause. How can I be more cause? Good. Who wants to be more responsible? Oh, I don't know if I can do that. But there's a connection. Do you follow? You're not going to be more cause without being more responsible. So who's seeking more responsibility? Oh, no, no. I have all the responsibility I can handle. Wow, man. You, you just pegged yourself. You just pegged yourself. I've got all the responsibility I can deal with. Good. That means I'm at this level and no further. And that's going to limit your success. He goes on to say this on responsibility. The way not to have is to ignore or combat or withdraw from These three, ignoring or combating or withdrawing, sum up to no having. Oh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm just going to fight that guy or I'm going to withdraw from that guy or I'm going to ignore that guy. You're not going to have that guy. You're not going to have any of the benefits of the association with that guy. You are now out of communication. You are now not going to have any benefit from that. You're a victim of that thing because you're withdrawing from it. You think that's putting you at cause? No. You withdraw from the fire. doesn't mean the fire went away. I'm ignoring this fire. There's no fire in this house. You still burn. So that's not the answer. It's not to ignore or combat or withdraw from. Back to Mr. Howard's words, these three, ignoring or combating or withdrawing, sum up to no having. They also sum up to no responsibility for such things. Thus, we can define responsibility as a concept of being able to care for or reach or to be. Here we are with that care word again. To be responsible for something One does not actually have to care for it or reach it or be it. One only needs to believe or know that he has the ability to care for it, reach it, or be it. Listen to this. The next line. Care for it is a broader concept than, but similar to, start, change, or stop it. It includes guard it, help it, like it, be interested in it, etc. That's 17 January 1962. Here you see a tie-in between caring and responsibility. You're not going to care for something you're not responsible for. You're not going to be responsible for something you're not caring for. Okay. That is responsibility. Puts you at the cause point. We now come to the last but not least element of success that we have chosen for you today. And that is to pursue truth. Wherever it is, wherever you can find it, if you have a dispute with someone, Look for the truth. If you have a conflict with someone, 
realize you probably don't have the truth. There's something, there's a hidden influence there, something not understood. If you are having difficulty with some circumstance in your life and you have a problem, there's probably an absence of truth. Always seek truth because it's only truth that will give you freedom. It's been known through the ages by far wiser men than I, and Mr. Hubbard might even claim, I don't think anybody who's wiser than Mr. Hubbard, frankly, but, you know, philosophers through the ages have always said, search for the truth, the road to truth. And if you always seek truth, in all likelihood, you will achieve greater and greater success. But there is a cautionary note on this. And I'm going to read this to you from Mr. Hubbard. It's the final lesson that we're going to give you in today's podcast. And here it is. It's from a lecture from Mr. Hubbard called The Road to Truth. I believe it was the early 1960s. And he says here, Now the person who adventures out on the road to truth adventures with great desperateness. And I wish to pull a long gray beard at that particular statement because no statement about truth was ever relatively truer than that one. A person who would adventure on the road to truth is taking a terribly adventurous step. Very adventurous. A philosopher who seeks to teach, discover, and teach truth is taking his life in his hands. And that wouldn't be very important that he is taking his life in his hands. What is far, far, far more important than that is he is taking in his hands the lives of a great many other people. Therein lies his responsibility. I'm not speaking about me. I'm just speaking about philosophers. These are Mr. Hubbard's words. Now, what do I mean by it is a very adventurous thing? What do I mean by that? It's because that is the only track you have to go the whole way on. There is no short stop on the road to truth. That is the only track that you have to go all the way on. Once you have put your feet upon that road, you have to walk to its end. Otherwise, all manner of difficulties and upsets will beset you. L. Ron Hubbard. All right. You're listening to this podcast, and we are relaying to you truths that were discovered by Mr. Hubbard, not by us over here at Wise East US. We're just relaying this, these truths to you. You are actually factually on the road to truth already. Many of you have been on it for many years. and realize this, you must keep going no matter what. You've probably already had in your own experience a point in your life where maybe you slowed down or even went backwards on the road to truth, and you probably have a personal reality on what Mr. Hubbard is saying here, that all manner of difficulties will beset you. And I have watched it from where I sit as the executive director over Wise Activity in the Eastern United States. I certainly see plenty. And I have seen individuals go through tremendous trauma, tremendous difficulties, and get into terrible condition themselves, spiritually, physically, mentally. Why? For one simple reason. They didn't keep moving. So, pursue truth, always. Always seek more of it. It is the only road you have to walk all the way on. I know that sounds awesome but it happens to be true. You don't just have to take that from Mr. Hubbard. Uh, one time I was doing a little research on my own and found this quote. You might find it very interesting. 
See if you can guess uh, who the author of this quote is, and I'll read it to you now. There are only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth. Not going all the way and not starting. End of quote. Where'd that come from? Did you guess? I'll tell you. Katama Siddhartha, the Buddha. Okay, there are only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth. Not going all the way and not starting. Look it. Too late. You're all started. You're listening to Business Wise. You've been studying the Hubbard Management System. You are learning truth. You're on that road. Make sure you walk all the way and relentlessly, dedicatedly, with the correct <laughs> professionalism, toughness, study, whatever, all these other elements. Let's face it. What does it all boil down to? Truth. Okay? So keep up the great work. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I know this was an extremely long episode. We did that on purpose. We just thought we would make it a uh, little bit special. Hope it wasn't so long that you couldn't listen to the end. If you did, well, thank you very much for listening. And um, give us your comments. Give us a like if you liked it, for goodness sake. you know, Use that part of your communication formula. Give us a like. Leave us a comment. Write us at info at wiseeastus.org. We love hearing from you. We would especially like to have your feedback on this episode as it was a little bit special, okay? All right, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. We will talk again and resume our series on the conditions next week.